Well, good afternoon. It's uh, great to see you all. Um, we've got some interesting challenges this afternoon. Uh, you might have guessed that already if you heard Ben uh, read. We're going through some studies in the book of Hebrews. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, we've landed in chapter 6. My title this afternoon is not the most encouraging one. Um, some of you will recognise this font from various video games of your youth. And you might even be more familiar with the sense of disappointment as your last life is wasted and you just couldn't quite finish that level. And this screen comes up and says, "Uh -uh, game over. With video games, you can just restart, can't you? Have another go. Or in in them, their olden days, if you were in an arcade, you'd put another 10p in the machine and you would go again. Some levels are really hard, and you might have uttered the words, this is impossible. Nowadays, after about 20 goes, or if you're anything like me, after one or two goes, you can Google the internet, and some other guy who's done that level already will help you, and that's called cheating, really, isn't it? Because you haven't really done it yourself, (laughs) but um, if you don't want to waste time, you can do that. The reason for my title here, Game Over, is that we've reached um, verse 4 of chapter 6 and uh, verse 4 says it is impossible what's impossible well it's impossible for someone who has once been enlightened and so on and so on and so on if they fall away verse 6 to be brought back to repentance that is the bible saying game over is it not Game over. It is impossible. There is a place that you can get to spiritually from which there is no recovery. Now the good news is that this writer doesn't think that these people have got to that point. Did you notice that? Look with me at verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends... We're confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. You see what he's doing? <laughs> it could be game over, but not for you guys. I, you, you, I know you guys. And I'm confident that it's not game over for you. However, he is wanting them to be aware of a very real danger. And I think this passage has to be one of the most solemn serious and disturbing passages in the whole Bible. Philip Hacking, uh, he, he was a vicar in Sheffield. He, he still lives in Sheffield. He's retired now. He wrote a commentary on Hebrews and he said this, Scripture is always honest, sometimes brutally so. This is because eternal issues are at stake and it is not kind to gloss over problems or to minimise dangers. Sometimes we need straight talking, don't we? And this is one of those passages. I have to say also that this passage is also one of the most controversial and difficult to understand. It has caused academic theologians no end of difficulty in interpreting. I know that because I've probably consulted about 20 different commentaries 
during this past week, old ones and new ones, simpler ones and more complicated technical ones. But this, of course, isn't just an intellectual exercise, is it? This passage has caused pastoral concern and heartache to people who care for other people. Many of us can think of people who once stood shoulder to shoulder with us in the gospel, who are no longer going on with Christ. Some of them openly reject Christ. Some have just gradually drifted very far away from Christ. Some of them think, I'll keep Christ privately, but I don't really want to be part of a church. Is this passage teaching that a genuine Christian can lose their salvation? Is this passage telling us that they were most likely not genuine believers to start with? Is this passage teaching that for some people there is a point where spiritually they've reached a place where it is game over? Well, I, I love the commitment our church has here to learning from the Bible because it means that we can't dodge the difficult passages and just pick the ones we like. One of the great benefits of going through a book is that you have to deal with the difficult passages as well as the easier or the more positive ones. Um, and we're going to try with God's help to understand this one. I also love the way that Rich plans because he, he's planned this whole series knowing that chapter 6 would fall on his first Sunday on his summer holiday. So that's really great planning, isn't it, on his part? And we've had some fun in the office about that this last week. I'm sure there's no coincidence in that. But, uh, well, he said there wasn't, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, see. Now, last time we were here in Hebrews... Uh, Rich led us to the end of chapter 6 and verse 3. His title was no less discouraging than mine. He summarised the section from 5.11 to 6.3 with the command, grow up. So we've had grow up last time and game over this time. So that's um, not too, too uh, fairly uh, discouraging or negative titles. What I want to do is just start by standing back and realising again that everything, it'd be really great if you have a Bible to keep the page open. Between chapter 5 and verse 11 and the end of chapter 6 is really something in brackets. You get that idea? Where he's writing the letter, he gets to chapter 5 and verse 10 and he mentions at the end of verse 10 this guy with the unusual name from the Old Testament called Melchizedek who was a very intriguing and enigmatic and interesting character and he gets to the point where he wants to say something about Melchizedek and he says in verse 11 we've got much more to say about this but it's hard to explain because you're slow the, t the problem is his audience are a bit slow on the uptake I was hearing a stand-up comic this week who was saying that they thought northern audiences were more responsive to southern ones. Very interesting. This uh, comedian said, I went once to a place in South London and for an hour and a half I did a gig and no one laughed. What an awful thing for a comedian. The audience was slow on the uptake. This man here wants to talk, he's not aiming for gags and laughs here, he wants to talk about Melchizedek, he wants to take them deep. 
And he says to them, I'd love to talk to you more about Melchizedek, but I can't because you're so slow. You're not ready. And all the stuff in chapter 5 and 6 then is in brackets. But then he can't resist. And in chapter 7, where does he get back to? Melchizedek. So this Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of God Most High, and then off he goes to talk about Melchizedek anyway. So he said to him, I want to talk about Melchizedek, but I can't because you're too slow. And he gives all these warnings, and then he says, and now I'm going to get back to our main subject, which is Melchizedek, which I've wanted to talk to you all along. If you weren't so slow, you would have got that, but I'm hoping you're going to get it anyway. Do you get, that, that, that's kind of the breakdown of where we are. Verse 11 to the end of 6 are in brackets. We've much to say about this, but you're slow to learn. You should be teaching by now, but effectively you're still in your little tiny baby cots, sucking your little thumbs. You should know better. There's no Puritan called Richard Baxter who wrote a paper. Imagine someone writing this nowadays. It was entitled, Directions for Profitably Hearing the Word Preached. That would be a good thing for you to read before you came to church, wouldn't it? Directions for Profitably Hearing the Word Preached. And he gives this advice to Christians. I've paraphrased it slightly, because it old language and all that. He says this, Make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. Don't put all the responsibility on the minister who preaches as if you'll only do it if he carries you by force. You have work to do as well. And should all the time be as busy as he is. You must open your mouths and digest it for no one else can digest it for you. Therefore, be working hard to listen all the time and abhor a lazy heart in listening as well as a lazy minister. He didn't mince his words, did he? Well, I hope I'm not a lazy minister. But there's a danger for us, isn't it? Whenever we're hearing God's word taught, that somehow we drift away, we're thinking about something else, we're not really working as hard as the preacher is. As we hear God's word, we ought to keep our Bibles open to follow the argument, look up the references, take notes if necessary, identify the themes, list the subpoints, and ask God to help us see exactly where He wants us to apply the scriptures that are being preached. One writer says this Are we sluggish in the ears? Not have you got a slug in your ear, but are you sluggish in the ear? If so, we are condemned to perpetual infancy. Isn't that a telling quote? So his message, first of all, as Richard rightly identified, is, come on guys, grow up. Chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. He wants his hearers to grow up and not to remain babies the plan was for them to mature and make progress and they were in danger here of standing still and I think the thrust of the writer's argument here is grow up or it will be game over that is really his argument if you're not growing 
you will go backwards. And if you begin to go backwards, you may lose all the things that you thought you had. It's a very serious warning. I want to do three things uh, with you. And uh, hopefully, it's so hard to divide this up and there's so much to say. I want to look mainly at verse 4, 5 and 6 because that's the challenging part that talks about the impossibility, this game over idea. So we're going to have a look at that. That in the Greek actually is one sentence, those three verses, one sentence. So I'll try and look at that. Then I want to look at verse 7 and 8 because there's a gardening illustration there. For those of you who are gardeners, there's a little bit of gardening And then we'll just pick up briefly at the encouragements that are found in verses 9 to 12 at the end of that section, okay? Three things, 4 to 6, 7 to 8, 9 to 12. Okay, let's start then with a hard sentence, 4 to 6. When I was looking at this sentence, it reminded me of Yoda from Star Wars. Do you know Yoda from Star Wars? I think there's a picture of him. There he is, Yoda. And the reason that it reminded me of Yoda is because in, in the original language, the very first word in this sentence is the word impossible. And I don't know if Yoda was Greek, but I can just imagine Yoda saying, impossible it is. Can you, can you kind of, impossible it is. He, the writer is emphasising, this sentence begins with the most important word, That's why I've called this game over. Impossible it is. Let's just be a bit technical though and get the sentence structure right here. Uh, Because this is why this passage is so controversial. What's impossible, Yoda? Impossible it is. Well, what he says, not Yoda, what the writer says is, let's see the next slide. He, 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 this, this is the structure of the sentence. He says, for something, to be something, because of something. Okay? That, that's the structure of the sentence. Impossible it is for something, to be something, because of something. I'm not putting it up there because I like X, Y, Z. I just want to break the thought into those three ideas. The next slide, I'll fill it in with text. So, here we go. Impossible it is. For those who are enlightened, etc., 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 who fall away, to be brought back to repentance. And then the last box is the reason that the writer gives. Because, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So, the reason that he gives, it's impossible for certain people, we'll get to that, to repent again. And the reason given is that they're crucifying Jesus again and humiliating him. They're making Jesus look stupid and pointless. The behaviour of these people, whoever they are, is causing others to think that Jesus is some kind of ridiculous simpleton. Do you get that? That's the logic he gives. It's impossible for this group of people to be brought back to repentance because they're making Jesus look ridiculous. Do you get that? It's a complicated sentence, but that's 
the, the way it flows, I think. What are the options? Well, I want to give you four, and then I'll tell you what I think. And uh, I don't necessarily want you to think what I think, but you can see for yourself by following this, and if you disagree, you can talk to me afterwards, and we can have a jolly good debate, like all those commentaries I've been reading this week. The first option is, the obvious one, that real Christians can lose their salvation. Real, the, what's been described here, those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. That sounds to me like someone who has become a Christian. That is very, very strong language to use, isn't it? It is impossible for those who fit the, that description if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. The problem with that interpretation is that, first of all, it contradicts the rest of Hebrews. Because this whole book is about confidence. It actually contradicts other verses in this very chapter. Later on in the chapter, from verse 17... The writer says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. We'll be thinking about those verses next time. But that's, that's the language of confidence, not flakiness, isn't it? This view would contradict Jesus' own words. John chapter 10. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. John chapter 6. You remember Jesus feeding the crowds. And then they had a big debate about bread. A lot of allusions to the Old Testament with the manna from heaven in the wilderness. John chapter 6, Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. That sounds pretty unequivocal to me. Eternal life does it sound like it's worth much if you can lose it? Do you get that? These, that? This view would be contradicted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 when he says those God foreknew he called, he calls he justifies and he also glorifies. One writer said God's purposes don't thin out towards the end they actually are solid and sure. Paul says later in that chapter that even life itself can't separate us from the love of God shown to us in Christ. These verses would also contradict Paul in Philippians. What did Paul say to the Philippian church? Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Does that sound flaky to you? It would contradict Peter, who says in his first letter, chapter 1, 
And verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Does that sound flaky to you? It would also contradict John. Are we we making a list long enough? It would also contradict John. So we've talked about Jesus, Paul, Peter. John, describing people who'd been in their own fellowship, said, in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. You see his logic? If they were genuine, they'd have stayed. <laughs> the fact that they'd gone proves that they never belonged to us in the first place. So I'm not so sure about option one. I think these are very compelling descriptions in verse four and five. The problem is that everywhere else in the Bible we're taught that a real Christian will be kept by God's power to the end so I'm not so sure about option one option two is that this passage is to do with church membership this goes right back into very early history some of the early church fathers they had a lot of debate about whether so, so get this, someone becomes a Christian they're baptised they join the church and then they make a terrible mistake they, they commit some gross sin so these church fathers would sit around and they would debate can this person be brought back into the church well I'm pretty sure that church membership is an important subject I'm pretty sure the Bible does have some stuff to say about that I'm just not so sure that this passage has anything to say on that subject I don't think this is about church membership third option some writers have tried to kind of say that this is really a hypothetical warning we realise that this couldn't really happen but what the writer's doing is he's exaggerating and he's being hypothetical to warn them of what might happen even though it can't happen I'm not sure that that's an argument at all be warned that what might happen to you will never happen. (laughs) I'm not sure if that argument holds any water. Also, I think there's an important point here as well, that does that not sort of make the Bible a little lame if the writers have to resort to making up hypothetical warnings to kind of make a point? I'm not sure the hypothetical argument works either. Some writers have said... This is talking about real Christians, but when it talks about falling away, it doesn't really mean a total rejection or a loss of salvation. It doesn't really mean game over. What it really means is that you've lost your reward or the blessings of the Christian life. 
I suppose the argument from the Old Testament might be that those Jews in the wilderness, they forfeited the right to enter the promised land, but they were still God's people, weren't they? I'm not so sure about that argument either because of the reason given in verse 6. When the writer says that to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace, that sounds pretty serious to me. And that kind of says to me that I'm not sure that the falling away here is just a loss of reward. And that's not what the writer says either, is it? So what are we to make of these verses if we reject those other options? Well, I think one of the first things that we need to keep in mind is that this is written, first of all, to a group of Jewish people. And that the whole content of the book of Hebrews is really about people forsaking Christ and going back to Judaism, which is what they knew. One writer says, the the, the writer to Hebrews here is addressing readers whose loss of confidence and whose flagging will to persevere in the Christian race point alarmingly to the possibility of them dropping out of the contest altogether and in doing so, of placing themselves beyond all hope of restoration. The argument here is that if they don't go forwards in faith, they will end up going backwards. And I wonder whether the writer here is writing to what we might call a mixed group, who all look like they are believers in Jesus, And he's urging them to be what they really look like. The warning here is a genuine one, I think, that if you don't prove your faith by growing and moving forward, maybe your faith isn't real. I think he's speaking here to Jewish believers who have heard something about Jesus, who have been baptised in some cases into the Christian church. They've been catechised with all this elementary stuff in verses 1 and 2. But now they're tempted to go back and the writer's writing to them and saying, be very careful. He's wanting them to grow up because if they don't grow up, there's a danger that they're going to go back and for them it will be game over. They looked like they were genuine Christians, but they weren't really to start with. Let me give you some arguments that might suggest that that is a valid interpretation here. First of all, it's not in this passage here, but I I wanted to remind you that Jesus talks a lot, doesn't he, about people who look the part, but are not the real deal. Think about the parable of the sower that Jesus told In Matthew chapter 13, only the first type of soil in that parable didn't get it. The other three all got it, but only one of them was fruitful. The seed that fell on rocky ground, Jesus explains, Matthew 13, 20 and 21, this is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. 
But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. What a phrase for Jesus to use. He received the word with joy. As soon as trouble came, he quickly fell away. Does that not describe perfectly what's happening to these Jewish believers here? They received the word with joy. Yeah, we love Jesus. As soon as it got hard, I said, we don't want Jesus, we're going to go back to Judaism. They fell away. Jesus talks about this. People can look like the real deal, and yet they haven't really got the gospel in their heart. The seed that fell among thorns, it grew but got choked and was unfruitful. So the first thing is that Jesus speaks of people who can look genuine, but they're not genuine. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, I think it was, didn't he? On that, on that last day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord. Some of them will say, we did miracles in your name, Lord. We preached even. And I'll say to them, I never knew you. They looked to all intents and purposes like the real deal. But in their hearts, they hadn't got it. Secondly, another reason why I think this interpretation is a valid one is that the warnings given reflect the Old Testament experiences of God's people. So, they also look like the real deal. So, the Jews, they come out of Egypt, they into the pro- they're meant to go into the promised land they look like the real deal but they fall short it was game over for them every single one of them who came out of Egypt died in the desert they saw the exodus they tasted the manna they saw the pillar of cloud and fire they, they'd had miracles and yet they grumbled and complained and whinged And when the time came to trust God and enter the promised land, they lost their bottle because their faith had evaporated. Game over. There's nothing left. They've hardened their hearts and the opportunity is gone. Every single one of them died. And it was their descendants who entered the promised lands, not the ones that had left Egypt. So the warnings here reflect something of those Old Testament experiences. I think um, the third uh, thing is that the reason given also kind of lines up with, for them, modern day Jews who'd rejected Jesus. So when, when it talks about crucifying the Son of God all over again, think about the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. They saw the miracles that Jesus did. They heard the sublime teaching that came from his lips. They saw Lazarus emerge from a tomb having been dead for four days and went off and plotted to kill him. And in the end they handed him over to the Romans who led him out of the city. They hit him, spat upon him, mocked him, 
They hung him on a cross to die and even then hurled insults at him. Call yourself the son of God. Come down off the cross and save yourself. It's a good job he didn't. They didn't know what they were saying, did they? The reason given here is that if one of these hearers or readers comes to the conclusion that Jesus is rubbish, I'm going to go back to Judaism because that was better. The reason given is that the problem with that is what you're doing is siding with the Pharisees and the teacher of the law and you're actually crucifying Jesus all over again. If this was a boxing match, you're standing in the red corner with the teachers of the law instead of with Jesus. This is no small thing. You're making Jesus look like he's some kind of ridiculous simpleton, as we said. If you had been there, you would have done what they did. One writer says, the one who falls away crucifies Christ on his own account by virtually confirming the judgment of the actual crucifiers, declaring that he too has made a trial of Jesus and found him to be no true Messiah, but a deceiver and worthy of death. That's what falling away means. To a Jewish audience, the writer said, if you go back to Judaism now, for you, it is game over. Why is it game over? Because you've seen the evidence, you've heard the whole story, and you've deliberately refused to believe. And there's nothing left for you. The only way to be forgiven is to believe in Jesus. If you reject him, it's game over. These are serious words, aren't they? A fourth reason why I think these words speak of someone who maybe isn't a genuine believer is because, well, there's two reasons here. I I think you could apply all these descriptions in verse 4 and 5 to the Jews in the desert in the Old Testament. Had they not been enlightened, had they not tasted the heavenly gift, maybe that is a direct allusion to the manna that came down from heaven. Did they not share in the Holy Spirit? Did they not taste the goodness of God's words and see something of the powers of the age to come? And yet they fell away. But more than the Old Testament Jews, this description, I think you could apply those words to Judas Iscariot, couldn't you? Do you think that would fit? Had he once been enlightened? Did he taste something of the gifts of heaven? Did he share in the Holy Spirit? I'm not suggesting in a, in a saving way, but he, he was part of Jesus' closest disciples. He didn't just hear the public teaching, but the private teaching of Jesus. Did he, not, did he not taste the goodness of the word of God and see something of the power of the age to come? Do you know what John says? The whole way through, his hand was in the money bag. He's sitting there sharing meals with Jesus and he was a thief. 
the writer says it's impossible for people like that to be brought back to repentance. Why? Because it's game over. You can't treat Jesus like that and get away with it. What a serious and solemn thing it is. Isn't it interesting? Peter let Jesus down very badly. Jesus came to Peter afterwards and said, Peter, do you love me? He said, oh Lord, I do love you. I've made a complete dog breakfast of it, but I do love you. Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times, didn't he? Judas, what did he do? He threw the money he gained back into the temple and he went out, hung himself. You, you can't speak about that without tears, can you? Game over. That is game over. He'd, he'd seen it all and turned his back on the Lord who loved him. Even as Judas came to betray him, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came for. Friend. It is impossible for those who have been enlightened who have tasted all of this goodness, if they fall away to be brought back. It is, my friends, game over. I think, fifthly, it fits with the illustration that the writer goes on to give in verses 7 and 8, which is the gardening illustration we're going to get to, do you remember? Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. It's a pretty obvious illustration, that, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with the rain. The rain is refreshing and wet and life-giving. Where's the problem? The problem is with the land, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with God's grace. There's nothing wrong with the seed that God sows. The problem is the land being barren. The test of our faith is the fruit that we bear. One writer says, if we are content with merely drinking in the rain, but not concerned to honour God with our lives. If we are unwilling or unable to hold fast to God and praise his name in times of trouble, then it is a very alarming sign that ought to provoke fundamental reflection regarding the state of our soul. I have to say this is true. I don't want to embarrass my family, but this is true for children who grow up in Christian homes, you know. Often it's really easy when you've grown up in a Christian home to repeat all the right stuff, isn't it? The challenge is being real. The church, says one writer, is no place for playing games, much less for indecision and loitering. What a great quote that is. Do you come to church to loiter? <laughs> the church is no place for playing games. So, this is not a case 
of a sad period of backsliding, but rather a complete denial of the faith. And to reject the message of the cross, the authority of God's word, the power of his spirit, is really to put oneself outside of the realm where God is at work. And the writer here says, no sensible person plays with fire like that. We've lost a lot of loads to say as well. The problem with all of this is that there will always be, in every church, sensitive people who go, oh no, this passage is talking about me. And isn't it amazing that the writer, the balance in scripture is so phenomenally wonderful, isn't it? He warns them. And then he encourages them. Do you know, this is the only time in this whole letter where he calls his readers, dear friends. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. Jesus told another parable about sower and, and weeds. And in the story, the sower goes out and the weeds grow with the wheat or whatever. And the servants who've done the sowing go to master and say, Master, master, who's put the weeds there? It's, we've planted wheat and all these weeds have grown. He says, yeah, we've got an enemy who did that. And the servant says, shall we go and pull all the weeds up? And the master very wisely says, don't pull the weeds up. If you do, you might uproot the wheat. That, is that not exactly what's going on here? He's writing to a mixed group. And the, the answer isn't to tear up the weeds and mess with those who are genuine. But he's wanting to warn and encourage. There's great wisdom in that. Let me, let me close with some, some comments. Um, I can't remember. Maybe four or five little comments. Well, they might not be so little. I won't lie to you. Rob, let, oh, here we go. The fact that God promises eternal life should motivate us rather than lull us to sleep. Some people have this idea that if they're a Christian, that this is a ticket to relax and take it easy. I'm a Christian. I can do what I like. And so they become complacent and think somehow this is doing God great honour. Look at my faith. I trust God so much. I can even sin without feeling any pain. Listen, if God promises you eternal life, you should smash the door down and grab it with both hands and cling to it for dear life. If God has called you to himself, don't insult him by being lazy and complacent. God promising eternal life isn't a ticket to comfort and ease. It is something to grab hold of with both hands. Secondly, there's another side to this point. The fact that God warns us about falling away should also motivate us rather than cause us to despair. Let me read you a quote from an old uh, preacher called Charles Simeon. He was quite an abrasive character in his time. He did mellow as he got older. 
but uh, I'm not quite sure when he preached this sermon, but it's very sensitive. He says, he, he preached on this very text, and he says this, the warning in this text is not to discourage the humble, but to alarm the careless. The apostle does not say that repenting sinners, however they may have fallen away, shall not be forgiven. The danger is that they will not repent, not that if they repent they won't be pardoned. Do you get that? So let not any person then say, I have fallen away and therefore cannot hope for mercy. But rather let them say, I have departed and must return instantly to God in his appointed way. The fact that God warns us shouldn't cause us to despair. It should motivate us. The reason God warns is to wake up those who are asleep. And the reason he encourages is to refresh those who are weary. Thirdly, let me say this, because I think this is the thrust of the whole passage. Be concerned if you're not growing as a Christian. That's the whole point of it really, isn't it? If you don't press on, you'll drift. If you don't grow, you will shrink. If you don't tend the garden of your heart, weeds will grow in it. If you're careless in faith, you're in danger of losing it altogether. So fourthly, we should be wholehearted and diligent in our pursuit of faith in Christ. Last week we were talking about whether this is the age of stress or the age of apathy. And we decided it was a little bit of both. But I think there's a third one out here. We could say that this is the age of laziness. Let me uh, read you a quote and tell me if you think this applies to our modern age. Children are too idle to obey. Parents are too sluggish to command. Pupils are too lazy to work. Teachers are too indolent to teach. Priests are too slack to believe. Prophets are too morbid to inspire. Men are too indifferent to be men. Women are too heedless to be women. Doctors are too careless to care well. Shoemakers are too slipshod to make good shoes. Writers are too inert to write well. Street cleaners are too bored to clean streets. Shop clerks are too uninterested to be courteous. Painters are too feckless to make pictures. Poets are too lazy to be exact. Philosophers are too faint-hearted to make philosophies. Believers are too dejected to bear witness. I don't think all teachers and shoemakers are like that. We've got some teachers here today. But you get the point. There's like a kind of malaise over us, isn't there? The writer here says, look with me at verse 12. We do not want you to become... What? He's still there. We do not want you to become what? Lazy. But to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. We'll get there in chapter 11. Great list of heroes in the faith who fought and sweated believing God's promise against all the odds. During early August 1942, a US ship called the Astoria was sank by the Japanese. There was a young signalman on board called Elgin Staples, and he was blown into the water when one of their gun turrets exploded. He had shrapnel in his legs, 
and was basically in a state of shock. But he managed to trigger a lifeboat that kept him afloat. After he'd been in the water for about four hours, another boat attempted to rescue him, but it botched, and he ended up back in the water. Same lifeboat. By the time he was picked up again, he'd been in the water on and off for over ten hours. When he got on the transport ship, there were 500 people rescued. And he looked at his, his thoughts were drawn to this belt that <coughs> saved his life. And he had a look at it and he found it, this has been made by a company in America called Firestone. And it had a num- numbers on it. His mum worked for Firestone. When he got home, he said to his mum, what, what, you know, what's going on with this number on my life jacket? Or life belt? And she said, during the war, Firestone as a company insisted that every employee take personal responsibility for their workmanship. So every employee had an ID number that was stamped on the things they made. And he said, well, I've memorised the number. And when he told his mum, they both realised that it was his mum's ID. She had made the belt that had saved his life. Can you imagine? Diligence. Carefulness. Personal responsibility. Imagine if that mum had thought, don't matter, everyone else is clocking up a bit early, I might as well. Don't matter if I saw it on properly. Would have been game over for his son, wouldn't it? On the very first screen, which should appear again now, put a question mark, I don't know if you noticed that because the truth is, after all we've said it doesn't have to be game over for any one of us God is not unjust he is exceedingly good he calls you all to trust in Jesus and to grab hold of eternal life with both hands He doesn't call you to a life of ease or comfort, but to hard work and patient faith. He doesn't call you to religious acts that you can then boast of because other people haven't done them. He calls you to his son, Jesus, who opens the door for you to be made completely spotless and clean.